It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Thanks so much for listening to the Adult in the Room podcast. I've been off for a couple of weeks, and I'll tell you about that coming up in a moment, what that all means. But I have an incredible interview with J. Christian Adams, an election lawyer, a guy who runs a foundation that does exclusively election integrity work. So I want you to stick around for that. But I had a couple of things I definitely wanted to let you know. And for me, it's come down to two things. One, the unspeakable concern that I have about the Mar-a-Lago raid, and yes, I know I've done programs about it with you about that. However, things have gotten so intricate, detailed, and concerning that I really felt I I needed to pull away for just a minute. And actually, I wasn't even writing for PJ Media for just a cup of coffee there because I really needed to sit back and think about what's going on. And I'm going to do that, tell you what I'm thinking in my next episode. The other thing was I needed to get out the final three Ravens books, these spy thrillers that I've had the privilege of being able to narrate for the last few years. And um, so I'm pushing those bad boys out in hopes that they finally make money. (laughs) You know, I love spy thrillers. I love that Kyle Mills and Vince Flynn, of course, he started the Mitch Rapp franchise, Kyle Mills taking over. And I know I've bored you with that before, but I just, I'm looking forward to getting Kyle Mills on and Brad Thor on to talk about Scott Harvath series, because I'm really all up in that stuff. I really enjoy it. And so When it came to pass that John Trudell came to me and said, hey, because we knew each other, you know, by very, very tangential means. And he said, hey, Victoria, would you be interested in narrating my spy thrillers? And I went, "Uh, oh, yeah, sure. No problem. (laughs) Little did I know how incredibly difficult doing a book is. I mean, narrating, even forget writing it. I already know that's difficult. What blew my mind was the fact that it was so difficult to actually pull off production-wise and furthermore, voicing them. Because in audiobooks, and I've told you this before, you can't over-emote, you can't overdo, but neither can you underdo. It has to hit a specific spot, that sweet spot in the narration. So if you're not a frequent listener to spy thrillers, obviously it's an entirely different genre. And I will tell you one thing. I think I'm the only woman voicing him. Now, I'm not pulling the chick card. It's not that, I mean, I kind of am, but it's only to say that I'm really honored to be the only woman out there doing these. And so I've really, really tried. And uh, I think they're damn good. So it's crazy. And with John's books, The Raven Protagonist, very smart books, who's been a former CIA agent, has been drummed out of the service, then he's been sheep dipped, and now he finds himself in a deep black operational detail in charge of the ops, but also protecting America's national treasure. And she's a chick, so it does make some sense that I'm voicing the books. But she is the last legitimate remote viewer in the service of the U.S. government. It sounds airy-fairy and weird. Sometimes it is, but it's pretty cool. So I'm privileged to be able to narrate them through Flamingo Audiobooks. So after my discussion, which is phenomenal, with J. Christian Adams, who knows election law, and he can tell you what went wrong, what went right in the last big election, and what's going wrong in the future and how we can fix it. Uh, Then stay tuned for previews of the next two Raven novels coming out on Flamingo Audiobooks and all the places where you get your audiobooks. Okay? So, with that, enjoy my discussion with J. Christian Adams, a PJ Media colleague, but also, more importantly, a lawyer, former DOJ guy, and a guy who now has exclusively pinpointed his career set true north on election integrity. He knows everything. Listen to what he says. (music) 
Jay Christian Adams is a former federal lawyer who worked in the voting rights section at the U.S. Department of Justice from 2005 to 2010. He serves as a legal editor at pjmedia.com, which is where I get to read him because I also write for them, although not on nearly the level as Christian Adams does. But he appears frequently on Fox News. He's appeared on National Review, Breitbart, Washington Examiner, American Spectator of the Hill, Washington Times, many other publications. When he speaks, people listen. He's written a best-selling book. It's called Injustice, Exposing the Racial Agenda of the Obama Justice Department. And he's studied a lot about that, especially since in 2020, he was selected by President Trump to be a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And his term will end in 2025. If Joe Biden doesn't try to run him out before that. Uh, Let's see. He also runs the Public Interest Legal Foundation, which is the nation's only public interest law firm dedicated to election integrity. And he's also a Federalist Society member. So he's got it all. And no doubt, Christian, after the machinations of the 2020 election, you are probably more interested than ever in the huge numbers of complaints and problems and the search for the truth after that election. So we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation on voting integrity. It should adequately reveal my ignorance on the subject, and so that's why you're on. And I just want to thank you for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad we can make this work. Me too. I, I appreciate the uh, the comprehensive introduction. I <laughs> You know, President Biden will have a hard time getting rid of me because President Reagan actually fired the entire Civil Rights Commission. So Congress passed a law, Tip O'Neill and company, to limit the president's ability to do so. So now I guess that keeps me in office. I'll I'll be the last Trump appointee in the federal government. (laughs) Yeah, maybe you will be. The purge has begun, hasn't it? And it's a frightening prospect. Um, Let's talk about that in just a bit. When you were named to the Civil Rights Commission, you wrote on your website, this hard year, and it was in 2020, so uh, by this hard year, you were talking about riots and unrest, looting, burning, all sorts of things that had happened as a result of the 2016 election. And you said this hard year has refocused many Americans on basic civil rights we had long taken for granted, the right to assemble and to worship, the right to be free from excessive force, the right to self-defense, the right to pursue the American dream, no matter if you live in Fairfax, Virginia, coal country, Pennsylvania, or the south side of Chicago. And in your opinion, that was a pretty dire time. Was it better or worse now? In some ways, it's a lot worse. I mean, you look at the, the, the level of random violence, uh, people getting pushed off subway platforms, uh, just a general decay of civility. And, and I, I don't want to spin out of control on the topic, but that's why I think so many people are sort of moved by the passing of Queen Elizabeth, because she like sort of represented this age where, you know, you were kind, you treated other people like you wanted to be treated, you spoke in measured words. Uh, and what we have in the country now is this debasement where, I mean, so much mayhem and violence and death and pain. And it's not the America that I remember from the 80s and even the 90s. And I I, I don't think anybody's quite captured this uh, intellectually as far as writing about it, but something fundamental has snapped. And I, maybe Victor Davis Hanson has, but it, it's truly a different world than it was um pre-COVID and even, I like to say, pre-Obama. We've lost our moorings. We've lost our social and our religious moorings, our beliefs. Uh, There's no objective truth anymore, it seems, or at least it's being rubbed out, uh, erased. Right. And, And we can look at history, and that's the scariest part of all of this, Victoria. We can look at history, and when objective truth gets put in a box and hidden away or buried or put up against a wall and shot, uh, bad things start to happen broadly. And there's so many ramifications of this, one of which that also fascinates me, not to join the queen on spitting out of topic, 
but sort of like the blind spot of libertarians about culture, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Uh, this is something I've not written about. Maybe that's why I bring it up. Uh, where libertarians have been like so focused on like there's regulations on ice cream stands. Like, right. Okay. You guys are right about that. The regulations stink, but do you guys have no concept of the power of culture and how a degraded culture eventually gets around to devouring your priorities, libertarians. Mm. And this is not like kick libertarians around day because I'm very sympathetic to almost everything they stand for, with the exception of turning the sidewalks into pot parties. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, I think I I just, we really, it's incredible. I talked to my friends from law school and I was like, did we have any idea this was coming? Like we had no concept that this, lawless uh, relativism was on its way. Except we did know about postmodernism. We did know about this sort of relativistic belief system. And you know who was talking about stuff like that? It was Jerry Falwell, and he was roundly poo-pooed as the latter part of the 80s. Oh, you're just some crackpot nutball, and uh, go back to your pulpit. Yeah, great point. And when you say Jerry Falwell, what I remember from that time is how the culture had this, like, an antibody reaction to him, like Hollywood. Like, he, I mean, he's been lampooned in so many different venues, uh, you know, not not always without some measure of perhaps, you know, he opens himself up to it. Um, but I'm not, I'm not, again, not kicking around Jerry Fowler. The point <laughs> is this, when Hollywood went wild with the efforts to preserve the culture from basically the early 80s through the what was the show that uh, in the early 90s uh, uh, where, you know, per, it attacked uh, it attacked normal f- two parent families? I'm just drawing a blank. Oh, every show. <laughs> right, right. Maybe that's why I'm drawing a blank because they all were doing that. Right. I was confused as to which one of them. But all of a so sudden dad became is, stupid and it was OK to mock him. Yeah, Simpsons, yeah. Homer Simpson and Ben Shapiro writes about that in his book about Hollywood, how dads became a, a laughing stock character universally. Uh, and so we all saw it coming and it was always so hip to be part of the mob attacking mainstream American culture. Uh, you know, the the moral majority is neither. I remember that bumper I sticker remember. growing up. And so now look at what it's wrought. It, it, it has gotten to the point where mainstream culture now questions basic truth like gender. Like, really? Like, what's left that's more crazy than that? Right. There's been Gravity. A- Gravity yeah, yeah. doesn't exist. <laughs> there you go. That's exactly right. And there was a study out of Harvard, I believe it was, in which the fundamental question was, why uh, Why is this generation of 18 to 25-year-olds so incredibly unhappy? And uh, the mm. conclusion was they don't have as much family connection, nor do they have a religious belief. Uh, I think they it was basically – so the major – moorings of society, the family and objective truth as taught at church, they're gone for these guys and they're profoundly unhappy. And they're always looking for the hashtag community that they want to be a part of, right? You know, there's this mod hip quest for community. Uh, I want to be part of a community. We have such a great community. It's like the replacement church because they yes. that's what you used to get. Yes. I, I'm reminded also, Victoria, by um, I think it was Václav Havel, who who actually I got the chance to meet. Uh, I, I One of the coolest – I have lots of signed books on my shelf. Mm-hmm. The one I treasure the most is not Jimmy Buffett's or Ed Meese's or – uh, you know, the signature from U2 or Bono, it's actually from Havel. Uh, he signed one of his books for me. And Havel, of course, president of Czechoslovakia, former poet, velvet revolutionary in 1968 mm-hmm. in, in, in Czechoslovakia. Um, he was totally on board with ideas of human freedom, overthrowing oppression, totalitarianism of the, uh, of the Soviet Union and communism. He was like Mr. Reagan personified, except on one thing he said to America, really telling, he said, you guys are going to have a, a long, difficult problem with sustainability with this movement. 
because you don't have God at the center of it. Mm-hmm. And Havel saw this coming because he was so wise and, and had such discernment. Um, that's kind of where we are today. And I'm not saying, you know, there's no room for the doubter or the one who struggles. I'm just saying objective truth has consequences about the price of grain, okay, or what your life expectancy is. The more a culture adheres to the dignity of man, uh, you're respecting that, uh, to objective truth, the better off we live. We have better lives because of that. Yeah, that's true. I don't think that's understood well, though, however. And, you know, first principles, why we need to adhere and uh, rely upon fundamental truths and how those have not let us down in millennia since the beginning of time. Um, Right. And you say millennia, exactly spot on, because this is the story of the Old Testament, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. like, okay, the the Israelites wander, uh, and I don't mean around the desert. I mean, they roam uh, away and they worship they worship idols and everything else, and then bad stuff starts happening. You know, because and, <laughs> right. and, and then they right. get back again. It's like, okay, we're coming back. Please don't do any more. I mean, it's literally the story of the old years Testament. later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, boy, I mean, they really messed stuff up, didn't they? They weren't listening to God. He was telling them. He kept sending them people and messages and just, hey, listen, it's kind of basic. Here are the rules. And all you have to do is adhere to them. And by the way, I made everything and everyone, so I, there shouldn't be too much complaint about that. So can we just get on with it? And no, they didn't. Um, I, that was my take on the Old Testament for just, I apologize for just jumping in there. But <laughs> there you go. I mean, so you mentioned, and I'm so pleased that you did and that you see this idea of the patness, the lie of so-called community, the the fake community. And it brings me to one of my observations that I imagine you have, too, because you brought it up, and that is the one thing as American citizens that we have done in community since the beginning of this country is to get together to vote. Uh, I wrote a piece in The Washington Times, I want to say about 2013, and it was like eight reasons to oppose earlier mail voting. This was like almost a decade ago. And it may have been like the first piece ever written about why to oppose earlier mail voting. And one of the eight reasons I talked about was election day is like the only day left, maybe with the exception of the Super Bowl, where Americans all come together, don't we? Like, it's like we're all standing in line together um, mm-hmm. we get, we have to be up next against the people of the opposing party. Um, so it's a good thing to do that. But where we are in 2024 is the left has essentially completely altered expectations as to what an election ought to look like. And it no longer is standing in line on election day to vote. It's letting the post office handle all the ballots, you know, the people who deliver you your neighbor's mail and turning things over to the United States Postal Service so they can lose 6% of the political mail they get and then still call it a victory because that's literally literally their aspirational benchmark at the post office, according to an inspector general report, is a 94% success rate. Um, and, and basically, uh, early voting where the election is just strung out. What that does, Victoria, is increases polarization. When when people just vote as a pro forma, non-contemplative matter on election day, it, it appeals to our polarized political culture where people just know who they're going to vote for no matter what, vote in September and stop listening to the debate. That's what early voting does. Yeah. In a city... It's a small city in Washington state in the last election, which was in August in Washington state, the post office lost most people's ballots. They did not get there until after the election. Uh, The post office was backed up like none other. It looked like it was a junkyard in the back of the post office. And I thought to myself, and these are the people to whom we are leaving the sanctity of our vote. And it doesn't get any better with people who pick up your vote, your ballot either. 
And there has been a proliferation of people and states, cities, municipalities allowing people to pick up other people's ballots. It's it's a recipe for disaster. Is that getting any better or are we allowing the ballot harvesting uh, to grow beyond that, which we've already seen? Well, uh, you know, it's very important to let other people collect other people's ballots. I, I got to share a story. When I was at the Justice Department, I did a case called U.S. v. Ike Brown in Mississippi. And we had a witness we put on the stand in the federal trial in courthouse in Jackson, Mississippi, named Susie Wood. And Susie Wood, everybody should know Susie Wood when they talk about ballot harvesting, because people would come to her house and they would vote her ballot that they picked out of the mailbox for her. And the judge asked during the trial, Miss Wood, can you read and write? And she said, yes. And this is all in the transcript. I could literally produce this transcript. Well, Miss Wood, if you can read or write, why did you let this notary vote your ballot for you? And her answer in the federal court hearing was that the notary knew the best person to vote for. So we like to think ballot harvesting is some kind of, you know, criminal enterprise where votes are being stolen. I want to emphasize it's a lot more complex. And there's a power dynamic that often takes place where people voluntarily are giving up their right to vote. And frankly, that's not a crime. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can let somebody else vote your ballot uh, under Section 203 of the Voting Rights Act. So, you know, it, it's a really complex issue that is not quite as binary sometimes as we yeah, might think. I, mm-hmm. I just don't trust people in Oregon. They did that for a while. They they, they had uh, groups in 2004 that went out and collected people's ballots. And even though, har- quote unquote, harvesting, I don't think was legal, they would plant themselves in certain spots and then they would say, bring us your ballots, which, you know, if you want to bring them your ballots, that's fine. But the voting organizations were the highest employed people. There was a, There were more people in that organization during 2004 than in the government, than in the university system, than in everything. I mean, Nike, I mean, it's just insane. Um, but yeah. so I, I, and I don't, I don't trust them. I really don't. Right. No, it, it huge numbers of well-funded people are trying to undermine and corrode the system. And they're corroding it. And maybe that's the, that's the end game, corroding the process so that means less. It's not a sacrosanct. Yeah, I mean, look, they're better at this, aren't they? I mean, they, <laughs> they've gotten a multi-year head start. Uh, they have massive amount of billionaire philanthropy. Uh, they're incredibly brilliant. Uh, they're smart people. They devise ways uh, to, to change the atmosphere. Uh, they're like a weather machine, and, and they, they have – uh, they understand culture, something like I said earlier in this uh, podcast, mm-hmm. some of our team doesn't, right? They're all like intellectual and, you know, rational and let's reason through this. It's like, hey, man, emotion carries the day. I mean, that's just reality. And so uh, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but that's human nature. So uh, you're right. The left has gotten a great head start on us in, in this area as they have in so many other areas like green energy and having the Russian government fund uh, fund a Bermuda Foundation that then funds the Sierra Club to campaign against fracking, you know, I mean that's that's the scope of their brilliance. Yeah, I am reminded. Not that it's hard to remember this because it's still in the news. The John Durham investigation. Not to get too far off, but. Here you have Mark Elias, sort of at the center of everything. He's a well-known. I know you probably run into him all the time, Democrat attorney in the swamp. And he and Michael Sussman and Robbie Mook and Hillary Clinton contrived a, a beyond a, a beyond the beyond uh, October surprise, which was actually the October before the election, practically. I mean... How is it that no one is really being penalized for this? I mean, and and nobody asks Hillary Clinton for an apology. Well, okay, the list of 
uh, institutions that might step up to the plate uh, includes the mainstream media, uh, the Department of Justice, the jurors in the District of Columbia. Let's throw that into yes, the mix. Yes, yes. Because Horrible. they had an indictment. And of course, there's an acquittal because the jurors in the District of Columbia are all, well, we don't need to tell your listeners what they are because they already know. So there's a lot of uh, institutions which failed us. Yes. Well, and that gets us to one of the first things that I wanted to talk to you about, and that is this case out of Alabama. You might think to yourself, well, gee, you know, an Alabama case, but I'm talking about the swamp. But this is the DOJ going after a conservative organization, demanding all kinds of discovery when they're not even a party to the lawsuit, apparently, that's going on. Can you tell us a little bit about that and sort of characterize for us what the hell the DOJ is doing? Yeah, let me set this up. So uh, Alabama passed a law. I think it involved gender or something like it, like you have the right to speak your mind. I, I don't know the particulars. It doesn't matter what it is. But so the DOJ sued. And I, by the way, I want to stop saying the DOJ I grow weary of people who say Merrick Garland, the DOJ. I just did it myself, so I plead guilty. <laughs> it's never the DOJ. It's always certain lawyers ah. who you have never heard of before that drive this stuff. It's not Merrick Garland. It's the mainstream trial lawyers like I was when I was the DOJ who are driving this stuff. And, you know, at PJ Media, Hans von Spakovsky and I did a whole series called Every Single One, and we got the resumes of the lawyers in the civil rights division who do this stuff. And we showed how partisan they were and how ideological they were. I mean, you want to talk about crackpots. I mean, it was like most people listening have never met anybody like this. So the DOJ lawyers in the civil rights division decided to sue Alabama for this new law. Well, along the way, they issued what's called third-party discovery. For non-lawyers, that means something you had nothing to do with, you suddenly get asked to appear in court about. And so they served third-party discovery subpoenas on the Eagle Forum of Alabama, a conservative organization. And they asked questions like, who did you talk to at the legislature about your views? Who did you write to about changing the law? What role did you play in this legislation? And all of these questions, Victoria, which reach the exercise of their First Amendment rights to petition their government. Right. Okay. It would be like getting a subpoena saying, what prayers did you recite last night before you went to bed? Uh, hello? Uh, what are your opinions? IRS yeah. 2012. Well, that's true. So this subpoena was filed in a whole constellation of conservative groups, I think 53, of which the Public Interest Legal Foundation is one of them, filed a amicus brief supporting Eagle Forum of Alabama's effort to kill off the subpoena as an intrusion into federally protected constitutional rights. But that's where we are. When I was at the Justice Department, none of us would dare have said, let's file third-party discovery on this group about the religious views. That would like never happen, but it does now. Who signs off on that stuff? Well, that's a great question. And that gets to my point. It's not always Merrick Garland. It's not. It's names people don't know. Uh, the section chief. Uh, in this instance, it would probably be I'm trying to think what civil rights division section this would be. Uh, oh, it would be a uh, it would be probably education section. Uh, so there's a section chief who's an SES, meaning senior executive service. They probably make one hundred ninety-five thousand a year with benefits. Uh, they would sign off on it with the approval of what's called their PDAG or DAG, Deputy Assistant Attorney General, which will be a crackpot political appointee. And then there's a principal deputy, and then there's an Assistant Attorney General who probably knows about it but didn't need to sign off. And her name is Kristen Clark uh, in the Civil Rights Division, and she's a radical, anti-white, race. Uh, obsessed leftist. So she's just trying to shake out of the trees any intelligence she can get and then at some point make it actionable, uh, bring some 
I don't know. It's like what they do to Trump. I mean, you may or may not like Trump, but I mean, the guy doesn't do himself any favors when he opens his mouth. But guess what? Opening your mouth is not against the law, generally speaking. And this chick out of the AG out of New York, well, you know, there's something in there. There's got to be something wrong. It's sort of this. Kristen Clark, if in fact this is the person doing it, says, okay, let's just go shake all the information out and maybe we can find something. It's it's yeah. wrong. It's wrong. Well, the pain is also in the process and they know that. And what they want to do in this case, I think, is find something that Eagle Forum said and then tie the Alabama policy to people that are icky to them, right? Mm-hmm. The, the deplorables. And uh, that's their strategy. This is frightening, Christian. This is frightening. We're in Orwell territory. Well, I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's so much. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that my, you know, the good news is we don't have TVs in our our house, but maybe these phones we have, you, know, you never can tell. Oh, yeah. Uh, Google always seems to want me to adjust my privacy settings to their benefit. Mm-hmm. You're something else that you were, um, well, another aspect of this is that they want this this third you know third party discovery. How often does this happen in a case? I've, I mean, I don't recall hearing anything about it. I guess. Well, um, yeah, it, during the Obama administration, I think it was right around 2016. I wrote a piece at PJ Media where a pastor had received a third party subpoena uh, to turn over all his sermons. Uh, because this pastor had testified uh, against, he had advocated against the construction of a mosque out in rural Virginia. And I I wrote this piece of PJ Media about how they were shaking this pastor down for all of his sermons. Actually, it it had to be in 17 because I am told that Attorney General Sessions read the piece and put the kibosh on the subpoena after learning about it. Oh, well done. Yeah, it just shows you, though, that even during a Republican administration, it takes like, you know, an inside straight for the authorities to even learn what's happening underneath them. That's why I keep saying, quit talking about Merrick Garland. Talk about Kristen Clark and the lawyers underneath her. Yeah, that's a good idea. Name them and shame them. I mean, if she, I don't know, she probably hit me with a subpoena. Or hit, has she hit you with a subpoena yet? <laughs> oh, that would be fun. No, uh, I don't think I've. Done anything that should cause that, but you never know with these folks. Uh, yeah, I kind of don't know what. I don't think you have to do anything anymore. I mean, we've got the guy and uh, the uh, pro-life guy who just got shaken down and raided by the FBI for something that had already been dismissed in court. I mean, this just doesn't. This is not making sense. This is not making sense. New you know, laws. That's the civil rights division too. That's Kristen Clark. Her division will be responsible for that particular case you're referring to. Twenty twenty to twenty five agents coming and taking away the father of seven in handcuffs, and after scaring the hell out of the kids and the family for pushing a man away from his son who was in his face, his son's face, calling his dad all kinds of horrible names. I mean, with lots of bad language and all that stuff. And the guys, get away, get away, won't get away, pushes them out of the way. Now, that's a that's worth a federal lawsuit? Are you kidding me? What yeah. is going on with these people? Well, it's worse than a federal lawsuit. It's a federal criminal prosecution. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. You're so right. He probably traded for a lawsuit. Uh, word up. I'm, I imagine he would. No. Uh, there's a couple of things that are happening, and I thought I saw your organization atta- names attached to this, but maybe not. And it's the one where uh, a George Soros group is being, uh, well, they dropped a dime. Uh, the folks over at Breitbart or the Breitbart co-editor, co-founder, or what have you, uh, has uh, dropped a dime on a George Soros group and said, hey, these these guys are getting ready to tamper with the 2022 election, and this is how they're doing it. How can a 501c3 do that? I mean, we all learned about the differences between C4 and C3 during the 2012 uh, era when, of course, the IRS went after all the so-called patriot groups. And so sauce for the goose sauce for the gander do you do you expect that anything would come of that i really don't actually i i uh i think that elections are like battleships um there's very little at this point that i'm think could be done to tamper with the election in other words 
we've seen a, a serious downturn, Victoria, in the amount of litigation from the left this cycle compared to last. Uh, that's, of course, because Trump is not on the ballot. Right. Right. So there's not as much money out there. Um, so I, I'm, I, I'm, I have a better feeling about this election than I do 2020. And you're not somebody, for example, for those listening, Christian is not somebody who thinks that, you know, there were wholesale fraud, there was wholesale fraud going on in the 2020 election. He just knew because he called attention to it well before the election that high tech media companies were working with election officials to basically create turnout machines for progressives. Yeah, and you're referring to CLTC, Center for Technology and Civic Life. Believe it or not, PJ Media was the very first place in all of American media anywhere that first reported on the private funding of elections was in March, I believe, of 2020. Uh, I wrote a piece. um, I think the headline is, Will the Election Really Happen? Mm You know, during the COVID spiral. And I had learned that people... You know, I, there's a roster of names I could dazzle your listeners with, but I won't. We're getting together to get private money to give to state election officials and locals to basically change how the election was run. And then at the same time, the litigation crowd was spooling up and, and you know, mobilizing the army to start to break down all the state laws. And so those two things combined, taking advantage of culture, don't forget the blind spot we have where $10 million in Philadelphia to get people to go to the polls and put signs on buses and on airplanes circling the city like you're at Atlantic City Mm -hmm. um, makes a difference. And, you know, that's what happened in 2020. It wasn't, you know, I I run the risk, of course, of having people show up in my front door with pitchforks, but it, it wasn't, you don't have to, have magic machines mm-hmm. when you understand the sophisticated model that doesn't require outright illegality in most cases to change the outcome. And that's what happened in 2020. And every single person who I know that has been in election administration for a long time or even at all as compared to some others knows that this is what happened because we understood the chess pieces beforehand. You know, we didn't like come to the space in November of 2020, and, and we knew that they were rearranging the atmosphere in March and April. And you could read my reports on it. I was mm-hmm. writing about this in, in March and April and May of 2020, that they didn't need outright machine ma- manipulation to change the outcome. They just changed the atmosphere. Yeah. Do you think that there has ever been like the manipulation of the machines and that sort of thing? I remember... Boy, in the early 2000s, the left was complaining about the machines. And now, of course, the the right is complaining about the machines. Is, has there ever been any wholesale evidence that that sort of thing has happened? Well, here, here's what I can tell you. The, the, <clears throat> a lot of people out there want hand-counted paper ballots. And that is the favorite method of election of third world dictators everywhere, like <laughs> Idi Amin. OK, <laughs> hand count of paper ballots are the way that dictators stay in power because the counter changes the votes. And I watched it happen when I monitored elections in Mississippi that used hand counted paper ballots. They just say, oh, like there'll be a big oval uh, for George Bush. And then they'll say, oh, no, that votes for John Kerry. And what the heck are you going to do about it? When the whole system is corrupt like that, like it would be in places like Philadelphia. You want hand counted paper ballots in Philadelphia? Are you kidding me? It's a one party (laughs) system there. There'll never be a Republican elected again in Pennsylvania statewide. So hand counted paper ballots, tool of tool of dictators. Now, your question about the machines. Thankfully, time is on our side here because states like Virginia have gone to paper ballots where you fill in the oval and machine counts. It's the best system of election uh, because you take broken man out of the equation of counting. You know, fallen man uh, who, mm-hmm. who who is not an angel is no longer in charge of counting. So here's the here it, it, we have a system in place with losers, meaning 
there's an incentive structure to find out if the machines are playing games because every election has a loser. And never once, Victoria, here, here's your money line, has there been an election shown where the hand count of paper ballots came out one way and the machines came out another. Mm. And every single election in the country, thousands of them, have an incentive to find that fact if, if it existed, and I would submit it doesn't. What about the receipts? The, the you, know, you have to have a copy of a ballot in order, so that a receipt of some sort, to make sure that everything is accounted for. Yeah, it's another one. Well, that the receipts are generally for the... Uh, a different method of election that doesn't have the paper, that doesn't have the thing you fill in. I see. Uh, that's your receipt to show how you voted. I think it's a little more problematic as everybody leaves with the receipt, right? They shove it in their pocket uh, and they go home. The Virginia method that I described where you fill out the election, uh, you know, the bubble on next to your candidate's name, that stays with the government for 22 months, meaning – that evidence is protected under federal law for 22 months, cannot be destroyed. And if there was ever a loser who had the magic machines from Venezuela <laughs> change the outcome, they would find it. And nobody's done it. Nobody. Yeah. Not one. There's not a single instance. Now, why that doesn't wake up the machine crowd is a little peculiar to me. Like at some point, you got to give up the ghost and say – Maybe there really aren't goblins in the forest. Mm -hmm. Well, it's your, I mean, I'm sure that you had a hand in that, that you, because you are in Virginia, you are in the swamp. You'd think that there, that might make the news in D.C. or something, but I, I don't know, maybe not. But let's go back to the, the folks uh, in the high tech and all these organizations that are once again, even though the wholesale buying of employment or uh, election offices has been outlawed in some places after the Zuck Bucks, they're doing it again. You wrote a piece for PJ Media not too long ago. I think it was hmm, June. And here we go again. So what's, what is this about? Yeah, I mean, it, it, what they've done is they found out that they can do what they did with Zuckerberg dollars with government expenditures, right? Uh, they can do different new things. That's why I'm trying to emphasize that these folks adapt and they understand culture. So one of the things they started doing, as I, as I reported in the piece you mentioned, are these these junkets where um, election <laughs> officials are invited to go to a nice part of the country and hang out with big leftist intellectuals uh, who, you know, drive the whole voting narrative uh, with – philanthropic representatives of left-wing organizations, of left-wing philanthropy, with uh, famous left-wing election lawyers, uh, with state government officials in some instances. Uh, and they did this, for example, in Colorado, uh, where they all got together and it was an influence operation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why, uh, why, you know, why spend millions of dollars to change how we do the election when you can just convince the election officials to be on your side in the first place. And so I'm just trying to emphasize that they come up with these new and devious uh, and incredibly creative ways to uh, to leverage their ideological views to the power structure that I don't think conservative thinkers even saw possible, right? Like we read this stuff and it's like, it's like the the monkey in uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, picking up the obelisk. It's like, what? I don't understand this at all. What, where did they dream this funny shaped thing up that I'll use to do no, you know, who knows what with? I, I just think they're so advanced. And there doesn't seem to be any conservative analog to that. Um, maybe there's just not enough will or I, I don't understand. Maybe the Republican National Committee considers it to be beneath them to engage in this kind of basically retail politics that is, as you say, a, it's a influence op. I mean, that's exactly what well, it is. Well, that's why you need Lee Atwater and Carol Campbell, former governor of South Carolina. Uh, you need people like that who understand creative ways to go in the other direction. But I think it's it, in some ways I'm very pessimistic because, remember, this is part of culture. They are able to produce these diabolical geniuses who devise ways to deconstruct the frameworks of the country and the law uh, because they have a whole system set up called the Ivy League and mm -hmm. other things that 
allow them produce to produce these star athletes of deconstructionism. Yeah. And and you know the right like our smartest people uh, in mainstream America they go and they learn how to work on diesel engines, right? Or you know go to aeronautical <laughs> engineering schools. Like they do productive stuff, not destructive stuff. So once again, I think there's a cultural blind spot here where the left has an advantage um, that we just don't understand. Wow. I guess people are, you know, we need, maybe we can get Mark Elias to, you know, turn 180 degrees and go to the, the light, the side of the light, the side of the angels, ha, as I put it, yeah. uh, because that's what's going to take somebody like that and who can pull the trigger on all sorts of stuff like that. Were you disappointed in the Michael Sussman trial? Well, it, it was, it was, uh, yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, you just can't, apparently rely on on uh, common sense to, uh, to to you know win the day when it comes to deliberations uh, it, it I mean it was cut and dried right it was yeah. a, I think yeah. a first year law student could have won that case uh, in Texas or in Oklahoma or where there's somebody or a jury pool that's not infested with the culture of the lie. And now we have Igor Danchenko, who's coming up. He was primary or subsource for the fake news in the uh, Steele dossier. And he's gone. His his defense is, hey, man, they didn't believe me. So what's the point? No harm, no foul. Right. And that's his thing. And here is John Durham, who's going to try the case himself this time after losing the last time. Good luck with that. And he, he is now arguing that, oh, you know, this poor this poor FBI. Gosh, they were duped. He duped them. He got them to involve themselves and investigate this. I mean, does I mean the D.C. jury sure didn't believe that in the Michael Sussman trial. They ain't going to believe it in the the Igor Danchenko's trial. But what they did was wrong. It was absolutely wrong. Why in heaven's name would you say, well, you know, that they, you know, poor FBI, they were really they were bamboozled by this by this guy. That's a loser. That is a total loser. Why are they doing that? Yeah, some of it, I think, is institutional where and this is something you don't appreciate, I don't think, unless you've been inside the institution. And Bill Barr is a good example. And, uh, you know, who else? I mean, there's a lot of institutionalists about DOJ. There's people who will defend the institution. Actually, almost everybody in the institution of the Justice Department will defend the institution and that includes the FBI, by the way, because they're part of the institution, sure. um, no matter what. That I mean, I know plenty of conservatives who are like, oh, we shouldn't attack you know, various things over the years. And they're institutionalists. They actually still think the department um, is more good than bad and, uh, you know, is noble. And they have professional standards and all this nonsense that you learn uh, pretty quickly, if he worked in the civil rights division, uh, is all a bunch of hooey to justify power grab. Well, it, sur- it surely seems like that's what's going on. And it's for those of us who believe in law and order, believe America's great. We're watching our institutions just fizzle. Maybe that's part of the end game, obviously, to deconstruct everything so that we can build it up in the way that the progressives want. But I always thought objective truth actually mattered, and I don't see that happening. I mean, I don't see that happening at the FBI. I mean, the Mar-a-Lago thing, that is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I, I, I know Donald Trump does himself no favors by being a blowhard, but for God's sake, every president, Bill Clinton with nuclear codes in his underwear drawer, for God's sake, or sock drawer, well, there is just no balance whatsoever. It's out of control. Is that just me? I feel like they're out of control over there. Well, and add to that, oftentimes they do the precise thing that they attack you for doing, right? They, yes. In other words, they're projecting. They, uh, you know, they're the ones who corrupt the, the political biases of the department or they take race into account too much or predominantly. That All these things that are so good at lobbying attacks uh, on conservatives and people who defend the Constitution, they, in fact, do themselves, right? Yeah. So that, that's one of the other ironic twists of the left's march 
in the last 10 years. Now, I know I've taken a lot of your time, but speaking of uh, race, and I, before I let you go, I have to find out from you what you think might be the biggest case of the Supreme Court uh, coming uh, upcoming session and if the Bakke decision is going to go out the window. Yeah, you know, I, I, you mentioned the top of the show we talked about. I'm a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Um, two years ago, I would have said that the Harvard and North Carolina cases would be the biggest case in front of the Supreme Court because they might get rid of affirmative action in college admissions. And that is a huge earth shattering thing. The problem is I no longer think that because I've seen what the left has in store post losing at the Supreme Court when they throw out straight numeric quotas, we may find ourselves actually wishing that we could go back to those clear, transparent numeric race quotas because they have devised an even more diabolical way to elevate people on the basis of race. And that's called, number one, test-free admissions, and number two, first-generation college admission preferences. And so th- this is now completely, if, if you don't have anybody that's applied for college in the last three years, you don't understand the carnage that is occurring <laughs> to high-performing middle-class white students uh, because of test-optional policies. And it is the new affirmative action for college admissions. It's just harder to pin down because it's so non-transparent. And I actually have submitted, first time this has been in the news, a a request for information as a commissioner on the United States Commission on Civil Rights to University of Virginia and William and Mary and Duke regarding these test optional policies and how they think and they hope that it promotes admission on the basis of race. And so I can't wait to see how they try to evade compliance with those requests. Interesting. Ah, so you're right. It's a little bit more sabrosa and it won't be an I guess it won't be an issue if that happens. But, you know, what is it that John Roberts said that one way you can get rid of uh, what? How is it? Uh, quit The way we can quit obsessing about race is to quit obsessing about race. Yeah, pretty much, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Uh, one more thing, uh, because I'm being I'm, I'm just cheating a little bit. But are we going to get rid of the Chevron doctrine? Or Oh, my gosh. OK, that is a fascinating topic. I hope the answer is yes. And we don't have enough time for me to explain what that is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jay Christian Adams, thank you so much for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks, Victoria. Thank you. And now here are the two sample tracks that we have to include in the audiobook production for the likes of, you know, Audible, Authors Republic, Amazon, and all those guys to use them. So I'm going to give you the 411, these details of these books. Now, remember, I'm the only woman doing spy thrillers, and I do a damn good job. And I'm not going to lie. I am a connoisseur of this genre. Okay, I know what I'm doing. And so I hope you appreciate what I've done with these books. And as I said before, the former CIA agent to set it up has been drummed out of the service. He's been sheep dipped. And now he's been brought back from death. He's been, of course, you know, they pretended he was dead. And uh, he's in charge of operations for a deep black organization, which is essentially run out of the White House. But part of his job is to protect America's national treasure. The uh, last for reals, yo remote viewer. And she's very interesting. Please enjoy this excerpt from Raven's Resurrection on the Adult in the Room podcast. I need a personal meet in the next week. It has to be with someone up high in the Federal Security Bureau, someone based in the United States. FSB. Not a diplomat? I don't care what his cover is. I need someone operational who can make decisions, not an analyst or a bureaucrat. FSB has a number of roles, from counterterrorism and border security to dealing with organized crime. I need you to be more specific. I need this part of our discussion. A Russian back channel to be totally off the record, including to Goldfarb.
even if asked. Only until Goldfarb's pending meeting with us in a few weeks. I may need to bring that up there. Our masters are still nervous about the Russians. If you insist. But by then, if things went hot, he'd already know. Mike said, I do insist. I need to keep Goldfarb's trust as much as you do. Not a word to anyone else. If you have an issue, you come to me. Yes, I agree. Accepted, I said. As for FSB, I'll choose organized crime. You mean like what the FBI does? In a sense, one of the names on my target list is uh, difficult to access using our own assets. The Russians have a valid international warrant out for him. We do not. I might be able to help them. FSB does assassinations. The old KGB used to subcontract for plausible deniability, but FSB tends to be hands-on. Are you suggesting? I shook my head. I told you. They have a valid international arrest warrant. They are motivated to take this person alive. They want to arrest him. And interrogate him? I shrugged. We can't touch him. They can. The target has major political cover. If SSB grabs him, he'd be better off dead. The Lubyanka is legendary for its uh, gruesome ways of dealing with enemies of the state. They'd allegedly cremated Penkovsky. Burned him alive. Putin continued the old traditions when he created the FSB. I don't care, Mike. Shit happens. This target is a major threat to our own national security and to my operatives. I finally can do something about it. Look at the bright side. Which is, if they do kill him, who cares? The world would be better off. Problem solved. You don't know what they will do with your tango, do you? I said, Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Churchill. Yes, I know the Russians will take my tango off the board. That's enough for me. Mike was looking at me strangely. So how does this involve you? That's the point. It does not. It does not involve the United States in any way. Given the right level of contact, I can provide information to FSB that would help them pull off a snatch and grab. It beats letting the evil bastard run free. Mike didn't speak. Finally, I said, If this goes to shit, it's my responsibility, not yours, not Goldfarb's, and not the President's. If it works, happy Russians will either take credit or stay silent. In either case, the world will go on. Will you help me or not? Do I get to know who this is? I shook my head. It's best you don't know. He's a foreign national. Why do they want this guy? He's a major threat to them, too. Their warrant says financial terrorism. They may have other reasons. Counterterrorism it is. I can set up a meet for you. I'll do it under a false flag. Do you speak Russian? No. Arabic and Farsi. Some high school French. Not useful. Your legend might be as a Brit or a Canadian. You hate the EU and globalization. That works. When and where? So that's all you're going to get of that. For now, until you get the audiobook. And the next... I think this might, the next one might be my favorite Raven book, only because I'm more familiar with the characters. I know wherever I speak. I always enjoy the kinds of things that he brings to the table in these books. And I'm going to do an interview with John, and I'm going to ask him, how does he know all of this stuff? It's amazing. So this one is called Broken Oath. A Raven novel having to do with cartels, corruption, not just in Mexico and in Central America, but indeed in the United States of America. Broken Oath, a Raven's novel. Yeah, 
Brought to you by Flamingo Audiobooks. That's me on the Adult in the Room podcast. Rudy and Terry were in the plane, slumped loosely into the posh cushions like a pair of lounging leopards. Rudy at 6'4", bald, and looking like the NFL linebacker he'd been briefly, didn't fit normal furniture. Terry was shorter, but he was built like a weightlifter, square, wide, and solid. They looked up and smiled at Josie when we boarded. I said, Black is trying to figure out where we're going. He said 20 minutes. Costa Rica, Terry said. Yeah, that's what he said. You don't want to get off and stretch your legs? Rudy said, What's the point? You just broke our hearts. All airports look alike. I looked at him, puzzled. Terry said, I always wanted to see Grenada. Have an uncle who dropped in there with Delta Force back in 83, back when Cuba tried to take it over. He said it was beautiful. Huh? Rudy said, I had a buddy who loved it. Beautiful women, fantastic beaches, good rum, great food. A little piece of heaven. All expenses paid. Some downtime. Now we're leaving in 20 minutes. Yeah, what the hell, Raven? Not my fault, I said. External factors. Josie said, Some tangos came for me. Didn't anyone tell you? No, Rudy said. Just the abort. No explanation. Are you okay? I'm fine. Terry looked at me. So are you going to tell us about the tangos, Raven? There were two of them. They faked a delivery. Pushed their way in. No IDs. Nothing to identify them. Mike figures we were blown somehow. I didn't see it coming. Did they say anything? Not after I shot them in the head. Do you know anything about Costa Rica? The airplane has internet, but John shuts it off when we get into busy airspace. I did a quick look. Looks like Switzerland so far as geopolitics. How so? Tiny country, good banking, highly educated workforce, strong presence of finance and pharmaceutical companies. Most speak English. It has free trade zones, good financial access, and strong tax incentives. It has a good airport. Unbelievable air connections. You can get direct flights to Toronto, London, Zurich, Frankfurt, Madrid, Amsterdam, all major U.S. cities, and most everywhere else you'd want to go. What else? Well, two things stand out. First off, it has no military. Secondly, it's a long-standing and stable democracy, despite general chaos in the region. I said, no military? None. Costa Rica permanently abolished its army in 1949. So it's safe, not a threat to anyone, and powerful people with a lot to lose, especially including cartels and dictators, like to park their money there, right? Like the Nazis, communists, and others did in Switzerland. Bingo. Safe. Good access. What's not to like? I grinned. Hey, you're the ones bitching. San Jose, Costa Rica. Early evening. Mike arrived after dinner. We all stood to welcome him. How's the swamp? Still there. I'm glad to see everyone got here okay. How do you like the safe house? No complaints. What's the deal? I made an executive decision. We've been stuck for too long. Costa Rica is the safest place that I could find along the invasion route. A friend owns this villa. We were talking and I snapped it up. It comes with severe operational restrictions, but I think it can work if we behave ourselves. First off, tell me what the hell happened in Grenada. I want to share it with the team so we're all on the same page. You had no warning. I shook my head. Now, I told you it was different having a woman voice these books because people are just not used to a woman talking about guns and ammo and bad things happening to bad people. I mean, they're just not used to that, but I love that stuff. I'm a huge fan of the genre, and I have to say that Brad Thor endorsed my 
uh, narration for the first one. And he said, uh, you're doing a great job, Victoria. Keep it up. And I'm just honored by that. I used I knew Vince Flynn. I mean, not well, but we went out to dinner one time with my family and just a great individual. And I every once in a while, if you watch my Twitter feed, you'll see me say I miss Vince Flynn. I just do. I have to say, though, Kyle Mills has been writing his books and I think he's done as many books that Vince did in the the Mitch Rapp series. I love that character. And I love all the talk about the guns. I want to shoot some of those guns that he talks about. Just pretty cool stuff. But Kyle's done such an amazing job. Ben Coase and his protagonist, Dewey Andreas, is just an amazing series. Incredibly well written. Um, drawing from his experiences in government. He used to be a Senate aide. I mean, he's no joke. He knows everybody. And I'm sure he's learned a lot in his position and, of course, plotting novels. Just really cool guy from what I can tell. And I look forward to the day that he says, OK, I'll come on your podcast. So that's pretty cool. And, of course, John Trudell right there with these guys. Good plotter of novels, good protagonists, unusual characters. Good stuff. Anyway, so I've waxed on about the novels enough and audiobooks. I'm a huge fan. And um, as you know, can you tell? (laughs) And I'll see you next time on the Adult in the Room podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen. And give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs, and it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed. <laughs>